6 o'clock service. Let me tell you something. I am super, super excited to teach this lesson today on Psalm chapter 3. So be opening your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3 if you have them. If you need a Bible, we can get one for you. Does anybody need a Bible? Okay. Tim, can you grab one of the Bibles for right back here in the corner? Or Carrie? I think you guys can hear me. Or Chris? One of you guys grab a Bible for right back here. Thanks, sir. I always believe that if you follow along with the Word of God as we're doing it, it really helps with your comprehension. And I have a question for you before we jump into the text. Now, I'm, I'm Pastor Tom. I'm the associate pastor here. Our senior pastor, our teaching pastor is Pastor Sean, if you're visiting. But I, my question is, have any of you been watching Pastor Sean's Facebook Live devotional series that he's been doing? If you haven't, I highly recommend you watch it because what he does is he breaks down the passages or the chapter that he's going to be teaching on Sunday. And he'll do four or five little 15-minute devotions on how he breaks down the passage, how he prepares for the sermon. And it's amazing. It really is phenomenal. He shows you how he literally breaks down the paragraphs, other resources he pulls in to help with his interpretation of the Scripture, how he does word studies... And the reason why I bring it up is because of this. This last couple of weeks, I've been super, super busy. Not only here at work with counseling is what I primarily do here, but also in life. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, less than that, my wife got in a major accident. The vehicle was totaled. And, you know, you have to deal with, she's okay, by the way. Um, you have to deal with the insurance and all that stuff, get a new car. So I've been super busy. And all the while, I've been knowing that i got to teach Leviticus on Wednesday, and so I decide, like, I'm going to teach three chapters the first day. Like, what was I thinking? In the back of my mind, I knew I was going to be teaching today, Psalm chapter 3. So I've been reading the psalm, but I hadn't done much work on it. So Thursday morning after midweek, I'm like, I got to get started on this sermon. I'm excited for what I've been learning. And Pastor Sean comes in my office, and I told him, hey, I've been watching your series on how you broke down Psalm chapter 3. He, he did it in four uh, separate devotions, and I had only watched the first three. And so I was telling him, I really loved the way you broke down the Word, and da-da-da-da-da. And I said, but I haven't saw the fourth one yet on application. And if you know Pastor Sean, he gives you that look that, he, he gives me that look, and he goes, the fourth one is the sermon. And I'm like, oh, cool, I'm, I can't wait to watch it. And he says, but you know, I may have mentioned on that fourth lesson I may have mentioned to all the people that were watching, I think I might have told them their job for the week is to read Psalm 3 all week long and then to watch you on Sunday to see if you've been watching what I've been doing. And I'm like, no, why did you do that? And, and Pastor Sean's so funny. He goes, ah, because I was bored and I didn't have anything else to do. And it was, it was, that's just the way Sean is, you know. And I watched it and it was absolutely amazing. So tonight, you're going to get the outline of Pastor Sean with a Tom Twist. The first service, I made a stupid joke that it's kind of like a martini, a taste of Sean with a twist of Tom, and so <laughs> with no olive, of course. No one here would know what a martini is, I get it. But let's um, open our Bibles to Psalm chapter 3, and I want to say this before I jump into verse 1, that Psalm 3 is a very special psalm. It's special for a couple of reasons. Number one, you'll, you're going to find this word, Selah. 
It's the first time this word selah appears in the Psalms. And it's three times here in this short little psalm of eight verses. And we're going to talk more about what this means. But the second reason why this is a very special psalm is because this is the first time that in the original Hebrew text, the author, the writer of the psalm, gives us a title. He gives us a title. Now, this happens 14 times in the Psalms, and every time there's a title with the psalm, it corresponds specifically to an event that was happening in the life of David. And so this is a special psalm for that reason. They correlate to David's life. So let's just read the title right here of Psalm 3. Again, this is part of the original Hebrew text. It wasn't inserted by a translator. It says, a psalm of David, so we know who wrote it, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So what's really cool is right out the gate, it kind of sets the tone. It gives us the setting in which the psalm speaks of. Now, you may not know the story, the background, or all the history between these two as to why David is fleeing from his son, Absalom, but by the by the author, by David putting this title on it, he's encouraging you to find out. And if you did the research, because we don't have time to read all this history, if you did the research, it would lead you back to 2 Samuel chapter 15. And to get the whole story, you would read 15 through 18. And that's the background. The heart of what's happening in David's life is being recorded right here. What happened, 2 Samuel 15 through 18, the heart is right here in this story. And I'll tell you, since I, I know the story well, I'll sum it up to you this way. The story of Absalom and, his, and Absalom, his son, and David is a story of betrayal and rebellion from Absalom, his son. And the bottom line, I would say this. My conclusion is that sin hurts and sin destroys relationships. And I mean vertically, hurts your relationship with God, sin and horizontally, it destroys your relationship with other people. And that's really, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, what happened with Absalom and David, a story of betrayal. Now, I want you to understand King David. We know who King David is. He's the man after God's own heart, right? But David, at this time of his life, his popularity was really starting to decrease. His, how do you want to say it? His respect that the people had for him was really starting to lower because of the incident with Bathsheba. You guys know the story and the murder of her husband. The whole, the whole country knew what had happened. And so their respect for him was going down as well. The people were already unsettled because David decided to do a census of the people. He numbered the people and the people, many of the people thought, David's in sin, that David does not trust God. He's numbering the people. Right after that comes a famine. Right after that comes a plague. And like 70,000 people die, if I can remember correctly. And so his popularity is really lowering. If you were to take a poll of his popularity numbers, it would be the lowest of, in his life. Now this is King David, the giant slayer. He killed Goliath. They sang songs about him. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. This is the man who killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. They loved him. But at this point, everything is going down. And Absalom, his son, is a big part of it. He's slandering his father. He's, he's trying to win the people's favor, all the while he's building himself up. He's winning the people's favor, and it works. 
And once he's won the people's favor, he openly rebels against his father, David. And soon after that, he's proclaimed king in Hebron, the capital of Judah. So right here, sin hurts relationships. It destroys relationships vertically and horizontally. So David knows he's in imminent danger, and so he has to flee. Here's where we find ourselves in verse 1. Look what David writes. Let's just read the whole chapter first, eight verses. Then we'll come back and break it down. <clears throat> A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. <clears throat> you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Now, before we break down these verses, let's say something about this word, Selah, which I didn't even say the last time or two. Selah appears 71 times in the Psalms, and the truth of the matter is, we really don't know exactly what it means. Now, people who study these things, they study the Hebrew language, they aren't in agreement as to the root of the word. That's where the argument seems to come from, the root of the word. Does the root of the word mean to lift up, or does the root of the word mean to be silent? If it's the first thing, to lift up, then it might be a signal for louder voices like a musical, a musical uh, uh, note that would tell the orchestra to crescendo or the voices to crescendo. Or maybe the guys who are doing the trumpets, they would lift up the trumpets and blow the horns. Or maybe just you would lift up your hands and you would just, oh God, thank you, and you'd crescendo. Remember, this is a song. So if you're singing it, that would make sense. You would want to sing it that way. That's how I would want to do it. If it's the second, it could signal a pause, silence, a time of meditation, a prayer perhaps. I think both could be true. When I sing it, I want to praise God with all my voice. But when I'm reading it, after I read each little section, stanza, if you will, I like to stop and just pause and meditate on what he's really saying. So in verse 1, we read this. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. Just say law for a minute. Just think about it. How my adversaries have increased. Just many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. David's enemies were rising up against him, it says here. And the worst part of it for me when I think about this is that some of the people who were rising up against him, it says his adversaries were increasing. He always had enemies. 
But the worst part of it is for me is some of those people rising up against him were his friends, his former friends, his confidants, people that were in his court. The peop- there was a trust there. The people that were closest to him were jumping ship, not just to stay out of it and be neutral, but in fact, they were going to the other side. These men that loved him and women no longer wanted anything to do with him. In addition, it says here that many are saying of my soul. It says many are saying of his soul. There is no deliverance for him in God. Because of the transparency of David's sin, many were looking at him and going, God is so done with you, David. Yeah, I used to care about you, but I'm so done with you. Look, I can't think of anything more hurtful that you could ever say to a person than to say, you know, like, like you're so bad, not even God would want anything to do with you. So if I heard that, I would say, well, then you don't know God. But you don't understand, Tom. God is smiting David. God is done with David. I'd say, listen, you don't know God. God is never done with you. He desires that all would come unto Him. And listen, people who don't make it to heaven to be with Him, it's because they're done with God, not because God is done with them. It's their choice. They've chosen not to accept the Lord. Oh, Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Have you ever been there? You ever felt like many are rising up against you? You ever felt like your adversaries have increased? Or maybe have you ever felt the pain of people who used to love you have now just decided to give up on you? Man, you are a lost cause. There's no way you're going to make it. You're nothing to me. You're you're not worth my time. There's no way you can be saved. How do you deal with that? Or maybe those voices are coming from within. Maybe you're saying it to yourself like, I've done too much. Golly, I... I've done so much, there's no way I could become a Christian. There's just no way. And everybody knows. No wonder all you church people can do it because you haven't done anything. Look, that is a lie. The Bible tells us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. Sometimes it comes from within. Did you know that Satan's name literally means accuser? That he accuses us. I've done too much and I can never make it. So maybe everything I'm saying is foreign to you. Maybe that doesn't hit your heart at all. Maybe that's none of you. But if it were, how would you handle it? Well, the great thing is we get to see an example of how David responds to those things, those accusations. We get to see an example of how we should respond to these things. Look how he responds in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. 
And he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. Think about it. God, you're a shield, God. You're my protection. Father, you're the one who lifts up my head. You're the one who's protected me all my life. I was crying out to the Lord and with my voice. God, you answered me from that holy mountain. Here's David's response to the problem. He says, but you, Lord. He looks to God in response to the problem. He, what he's doing here basically is he's reflecting about what he already knows about God. Like, I know these things about you, God. Like, maybe things that had personally already happened in his life. Like, David was a warrior king. He's reflecting back, God, how many times you saved me in battle. David led the armies into battle, unlike the other kings. He led the battles, and he's reflecting back, how, God, you were my shield, you're my protector. He's reflecting back on what he already knows about God. And maybe he's reflecting back about the things he, he's learned about God. Men from the past, great men of faith who wrote about the great things they know about God. I wonder if he was reflecting back on Abram when Abram, or when God appeared to Abram in a vision and he said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Back in Genesis 15, verse 1. David remembers who God is, and it says he cries out, But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Not only did David remember who God is, but he calls him my glory. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word for glory is kebod. And this word in English means a person's reputation or honor. So he's crying out, but you, O Lord, you're a shield around me. You're a protector around me. You are my reputation. You are my honor. It's interesting that David found his significance and he found his honor linked to his relationship with the Lord rather than his own strength. Now, we can all glorify many things in our own lives. But David's glory came from the Lord. Where does your glory come from? Intellect? Physicality? Artistic ability? David had all of those. He even had good looks. But all those things fade. They fade away. David cries out, God, you are my protection, my shield, you're my honor. My reputation comes from you. My glory comes from the Lord. David's enemies were saying, no, no, God is done with David. David's saying, uh-uh, I, that's a lie. I'm not having any of that. Because David's glory came from the Lord. He knew what God had been to him in the past. It's powerful. Now, when I studied this out, verse 4 just really hit me. Where it says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. And he answered me from his holy mountain. It, it's interesting, the phrasing there. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. Look, I learned the value of praying out loud with my voice early on in my Christian walk. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with praying silently. I do it all the time. It's beautiful. In fact, midweek, our first 10 minutes is devoted to prayer. I remember the first time I came to midweek, I, I literally wept because I was so moved by all of us praying together as a body, but yet silently. And it was so moving. So silent prayer is amazing. I'm not down on it, but there is value in crying out with your voice, praying out loud. And there was a time early in my Christian walk, I was not a Christian. I was studying the Bible with a group of guys, and I had lots of junk in my life. And there was a time when I was in deep anguish. And I was praying for some bad things to happen to some people. I was praying that these people would get in an accident and they'd get bitten by a bear. <laughs> I know it sounds, sounds crazy to get bit by a bear, but if you knew the context of the situation, you would totally understand. And, and I somehow knew that this couldn't be right, that this isn't what a Christian does. I knew just enough about the Bible that that isn't what a believer in God does. God says, love your enemies. And so I called this guy... I love him to death, Barry Underwood, the guy who was leading the Bible studies with me. And I just said, Barry, you know, I, I, I'm so confused. I, I'm, I'm thinking or I'm hoping that these people would get in this accident and get bitten by a bear. And Barry says, wait, 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 wait. Did, are you thinking it or are you praying it? I said, well, I don't know. He says, Tom, listen, I want to challenge you from here on out. Every time you pray, I want you to pray out loud. Because when your ears hear the stupid things coming out of your mouth, there'll be no question whether you prayed it or whether you thought it. And it's been a lesson. I think that's why that just cut me so, so much when I read that, because of this lesson that I learned. But I will say, it does say, that God answered him from the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying. I mean, to me, it kind of sounds like he cried out so loud, you could hear across the valley, and God heard him from way over there on the Holy Mountain. Of course, God hears us all the time. But it, it was just an interesting play on words there for me. Look at verse 5. I love this. It says, I laid down and slept. I awoke. For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. I, I really love these two verses because it really demonstrates the comfort that David received from the hand of the Lord. He, he remembered who God was to him, and then he cries out to God, and God comforts him. And you say, well, how do you know he was comforted by God? How do you know God comforted him right there? Because he slept, right? He slept. Now, how many of you are worriers? Go ahead. If you're a worrier, put your hand up. Or, or you're melancholy, put your hand up. Look, I can't sleep when I'm worried. I am a worrier. I just, I just worry. I can't sleep when I'm worried. Now, if you're not a worrier, praise God for you. I think the world runs smoother. I think we get more accomplished because of people like you. Amen for you. I'm grateful. But for me, I need to work it out before I go to sleep. 
Sometimes I pray myself to sleep. And sometimes during that time, I mean, I have a Bible, the very first Bible I ever got. I keep it by the side of my bed, and I'm not ashamed to tell you, I grab it like a teddy bear. And when I'm afraid, I just hug it. I just, I pray, I'm worried, and my mind is racing, and I'm just praying. And there's times I'm crying out to God. Sometimes it feels like a legion is attacking me. And I pray myself to sleep. And then in the morning, guess what? I wake up. It's confirmed. The Lord sustains me. And I often look back at that night and I go, like, God, what was I so worried about, right? Like, God, that was nothing. I can't believe I was so stressed out about that. My wife, she's been asleep for eight hours, you know, no problem. She's not much of a warrior. But I think it was like this for David. We don't know if, if he got comforted by God before he went to sleep or it was when he woke up and Look, if anybody had a thing to worry about, it would have been David. There was men literally hunting him down, and he woke up. And it's like, it's confirmed. The Lord sustains me. The important thing to remember here is that David reasoned out in his mind and in his heart that it is God who determines his lifespan. The Lord sustains me. It's God who determines our lifespans. He woke up. It's confirmed. He was alive. Again, David didn't know if he would ever wake up again. And it gave him confidence when he did to say the words, now I'm ready to take on the tens of thousands who would come against me. I think that's what gave Paul, that, that same feeling is what gave Paul the confidence to do so much of what he did. You can read about it. The one that comes to my mind is Philippians 1. Paul says, for to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. He's saying, look, God's not done with me. Like, I would rather be with you, Lord, but if I have to stay in this body, it means you got work for me to do. Because, Lord, he knew God determines our lifespans. When he was in Athens, he told the people of Athens He's walking around the city. He sees him worshiping all these foreign gods. He even sees an inscription that says, to an unknown God. He goes, look, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. In Acts 17, he says this, speaking of God, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. It's incredible. Look, God is, determines our lifespan. He knows the time and place where we would live. It's all been pre-programmed. Do, do you think it's a coincidence that you're here or listening online? It's not. God has determined the time and place that you would live because God is in control. Look, bottom line, God is still God even in our fears. God is still God even in our difficulties. God is still God in our isolation. God is still God in our quarantine. He sees us through the mask. God 
We're never alone with God. Everything has meaning. Not one second goes by that God doesn't know about. The Bible tells us that God puts the waters of the world in the palm of His hands. That God knows every hair on your head. That He has stretched out the heavens for a canopy over His head. God is so in control. This realization that God determines our lifespan and when David comes to this realization that God, it is God who sustains him, look what he goes on to say here in verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be upon your people, Salah. Look, this is the best. I, I, I love this because what, what David is basically doing right here, he's remembering what God has already done in his life in the past, which gives him great confidence about the present as well as the future. He's remembering back about what God's already done in his life in the past. And it gives him great strength and confidence about right now. Look what he says. You have, past tense, you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Very specific to him. He's remembering, God, you've always taken care of me. He says, you have, past tense, shattered the teeth of the wicked. A general reference that God is always in control. God, is, God takes care of. The wicked, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God, you've always been there in the past. Look, can't we all, as believers in the Lord, look back on our lives and just count the times over and over and over again where the Lord has had your hand on your family, on your kids, on your life. When, when you've been in a near accident and you got that, oh God, how did, we, how did we get through that? God's hand was on your life. Maybe He's protected you in the middle of that storm. You didn't think you were going to make it. God pulled you through. Maybe it was an open door of opportunity. Like, I can't believe I got that job or I can't believe I got that wife. God was right there with this open door of opportunity. Maybe, maybe you were disciplined one time and you hated it. You struggled with the discipline that God was putting on you. You didn't understand it. And then years later, you look back at it and you go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that happened. I probably would have been dead if it wouldn't have been for God's intervening hand. Maybe God closed the door and didn't allow you to have something. Like sometimes we thank God for unanswered prayers. He closes doors. One of the most cherished ways that you can ever connect with God in prayer is to pray over all the times. You think back over all the times God has had your hand, His hand on your life and your children. And the list will just go on and on. I was just sharing, sharing a prayer like that with Pastor Sean before I wrote the sermon. I was telling him, I was in my backyard, I was looking out at this horse field and it was just this beautiful day, and I was praying. I just started thinking of all the times. Look, I shouldn't even be alive. I was going through all the things that 
I've been able to survive. I so saw God's hand in my life. I'm thinking about this amazing wife I have, the most amazing child that I am blessed to take care of and have. You guys know her. Little Bailey, I have a daughter with Down syndrome. It's like the greatest blessing in the world. And I just remember telling Sean, I, I just can't believe this is my life. One, that I'm alive, that I live in this, this city, that I have this church, people who love me. And the thing is, you even know me and you still like me. I just was like, I can't believe this is my life. Because I was just going back and reflecting back all the time that God had His hand on my life. Look, I don't obsess over the news. Although I'm very very knowledgeable about everything that's going on because I know God has always pulled me through. God has had His hand on my life. God is not through with me. And yes, I know there's wickedness in this world, but God is in control. God gets the last word. Coronavirus, it's real. But God is still in control. God will get the last word. And then I love how David ends this psalm so much, he, he remembers something super important, everyone, that salvation belongs to the Lord, both temporary and eternally. Temporary, like the men were hunting him down to kill him. He was outnumbered, but we know the story. David wins. But also there's, a temp or there's an eternal aspect to it. So I think it's both. He says in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing, God, your blessing be upon your people. That's important. You catch that. Your people. The big question is, are you one of His people? Are you in Him? Salvation comes from the Lord. Your blessing, Lord, be on your people. Are you one of His people? I love how it's so put together. Verse 8 connects with verse 1. They were saying, there's no deliverance for Him in God. I'm like, well, yeah, if you were making the decision, enemies of David, but you're not because salvation belongs to the Lord. There's no deliverance for him in God, they said. Deliverance for David, they said. David says, that's a lie. That is not true. Look at the contrast. What they're saying and what David knows. Salvation belongs to the Lord. No, there's no deliverance for you in God. No, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let me tell you something about salvation where it doesn't belong. Salvation does not belong to your good deeds. I'm a good person, and I'm sure that my good deeds will more than outweigh my bad deeds on Judgment Day. Salvation does not belong to your good deeds. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We can't we can't ever say, that guy, that girl, they'll never make it because salvation does not belong to us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We can't say, I made that guy a Christian. I studied the Bible with him. I helped that guy. I made that guy his faith. You can't say that. You can plant the seed. 
collectively we can all pray and water the seed, but it's God who makes it grow because salvation belongs to the Lord. And so this psalm is absolutely remarkable, eight little verses, and it's just so rich. There's so much in there. What we've learned tonight, and I'm going to invite Doug back up to uh, play the final song. We've learned in these short, this short psalm, these eight verses, that God sustains us in the midst of the storm. He sustains us in the midst of all storm because God has determined the exact time and places that we would live and God has determined our lifespans. And God is not through with you. We've learned that we always need to remember how God has delivered you in the past. He's always come through in the past, which should give you great confidence about your present, about what's going on right now. You don't have to obsess. And we've learned that we always need to know the most important thing, that salvation comes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, if you're listening or visiting, I don't know a lot of you. And you don't know about salvation. I suggest you come up and talk to me or one of the elders. We would love to help you with that. If you're online and not sure what I'm even talking about, we'd love for you to call. I'd love to talk to you and help you with that. Salvation comes, belongs to the Lord, not to me. I'm just a stupid man. I have no special power, but I know who does. Let's pray. Amen. Our God in heaven, we are thankful for tonight. And Father, we are blown away by the wisdom that comes out of eight little verses. Father, we look at David as a man with great victory and great sorrow, a man of great highs and great lows. And Father, but we know that he's in heaven with you. Father, I can't wait to fellowship with him one day. And Father, I'm thankful of his example to cry out to you. I'm thankful for his example of transparency about his sin. Father, we know that repentance plus forgiveness equals no fear. That we no longer need to fear about being before the Lord. Father, we're thankful that in Jesus, that we will one day be able to stand before you in the throne of grace. And Father, jump into your lap. Father, would you be with us as we leave? Thank you for your words and thank you for this evening. We love you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.